I once was asked by Justice Kennedy to go to his chambers at the Supreme Court when I was living in Washington. He knew that I had been studying Russia, and I went in, I sat there, and he came out and he said, I'm going to Moscow, and I'm going to give a lecture. He said, I'm going to teach them about judicial independence. I'm going to teach them how great it is, and so I want them to know that they should be like us. Although judicial independence, it's very political, judges are political appointees, it's an ideology anyway, but he was freed from all of that by going to a foreign venue talking about it as if it was some kind of pure ideal. And he could talk about it in the most ideal way abroad because all the realities of it were left behind. And people who knew what it meant were also not there to criticize him. So I think the pleasure of proselytizing Western institutions is partly that you can gloat in this idealized version. And the more you do that, the less you understand your own society. And I think that's part of the post-89 it allowed us to have a fantasy, to not have a sense of the imperfections of our own order, which during the Cold War, because we were being challenged, and there's a whole literature on the, the, the influence of the Cold War on the Civil Rights Movement, because we were being beaten up internationally by the way of, um, white Americans were treating blacks, and there was a sense that we have to do something about this as a matter of national security. So once the Cold War competition is gone, the sense that there's an idea of equality that's not being realized particularly well in the United States, and therefore there's a level of self-doubt or self-questioning that goes along with the competition with another power. Once that other power is viewed as defeated and we as having vanquished them, then this sense of self-questioning is diminished. In his memoir, The World As It Is, Ben Rhodes, Barack Obama's closest national security aide, confides that on the day Obama left the White House, the worry that haunted him the most was, what if we were wrong? That is, what if liberals had misinterpreted the nature of the post-Cold War period? What if we were wrong is the question that Ivan Krastev and Stephen Holmes set out to explain in their recent The Light That Failed, A Reckoning, which takes Eastern Europe as Exhibit A. The book is a meditation on how liberalism lost its appeal and the themes have clear echoes in East Asia. Guest hosting today is Eddie Fishman, a former guest of China Talk, adjunct at CNAS, and former State Department official. Ivan and Steven, want to quickly introduce yourselves? My name is Ivan Krastev. I'm Bulgarian by origin. Now we the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. I'm a political scientist, if it means anything today. And I'm Steve Holmes, and I teach at NYU Law School. And I've been close friends with Ivan for quarter of a century or maybe more. So all four of us watched the first U.S. presidential debate last night. I'm wondering if you guys can tie the spectacle we all saw to, to some of the themes of your book to, uh, to start us off today. One of the main topics or themes uh, that Ivan and I wrote about is the, the paradox that although much of the world resented having to imitate America and feeling inferior to America because of the imperative of imitating the American model, that the Trump uh, originality is to uh, create an image of the world uh, of America in the world that no one would want to imitate. And I definitely think we saw that last night. Listen, if uh, there was a Bulgarian presidential debate like this taking place five years ago, all the commentators are going to make just one comment. It can never happen in the United States. <laughs> Not anymore. Uh, there you go. So it's, it's uh, the end of American exceptionalism and the normalization of America or the Bulgarianization, Bulgarianization of America. So with that, let's take it back to 1989. What was left in the wake of the uh, fall of the Soviet Union? 
one of the interesting stories that even if you're now, now 20, 25 years old, you're going to know probably the facts. You're going to know that it was important, but you're not going to understand how much you have the feeling that something fundamentally is changing in human history. So while people basically these days are ridiculing uh, Frank Fukuyama for his idea of the end of history, paradoxically, he captured well this feeling of the time that suddenly history doesn't matter because we're going into a totally different world, because there were two universalist ideologies that have been clashing during the Cold War. There were certain things we did not see in 89. We didn't see that the transformation that everyone heralded and which everyone thought of as uh, as so promising for the spread of the liberal democratic model could produce a politics of resentment and grievance, which is what it did. So the the quest of the first part of the book is to explain why, to answer that question. What is the, what is at least one of the reasons why the, the promise of liberal democracy and the attempt to democratize and liberalize Central Europe produced a backlash on a politics of grievance, resentment, and a politics of really vehement anti-liberalism. So what exact, what kind of failure was the revolution of, of 1989? Listen, uh, George Orwell used to say that every revolution is a failure, but it's not the same failure. And one of the paradoxes of 1989 was that basically it was the success of the idea of the 1989 that was at the root of some of the problem that we are seeing now. Back in 1989, something very important has changed if you see this from the point of view of East Europeans. Normally, revolution is about building a new society. People are talking about the future as something which is ahead in time. For the East Europeans, for all of us in 1989, future was just next to us in, in space. It was one border away. The future East was the West. So after 1989, one of the most important concepts that was very much used in Central and Eastern Europe and the concept that we have been also very much trying to unpack was the idea of a normal society. Western liberal democracies have been defined as a normal societies. So in a certain way, to be a liberal democracy means to be normal. And from this point of view, you start to try to make out of your society a Western society, and as a result of it, imitation is critically important. And, and just keep in mind, we do believe that imitating is absolutely fine. Normally, this is how societies develop. But one thing that was missed in 1989 was that the relations between the model and the imitator is asymmetrical relations. If I want to be like you, it basically means that I think that you're better than me. And then comes the story, where is the problem with me? And I do believe this kind of a resentment toward position of the imitation came exactly when the Central and East European societies, more than ever before, felt like being like the West and being part of the West. So Ivan, I, I have a question on that. I want to dig into to a point you made, which is that the revolutionaries of 1989 were, were basically trying to imitate a form of normality in the West. And I think one of the, the things I want to do is intersect your story with politics in the U.S. Because, of course, normality and liberalism as it was practiced in the U.S. evolved over the course of the Cold War. And the unwinding of the Cold War coincided with a very peculiar moment, right? The, the heyday of Reaganism, the apotheosis of, of neoliberal economic thought. Do you think things might have turned out differently had the Cold War ended with a different set of ideas ascendant in the West? Listen, uh, very much, because one of the interesting stories was that the idea of the West in the East 
was very different than the West in the way it was. Because many of these stories, for example, uh, West from the 1970s and the West from the 1980s, this major change basically that came with uh, Reagan and Carter was not perceived from the East as, as important it was really wasn't in the way it was perceived by the West. We were trying to see the different tensions within the Western models, the different type of visions how the West is going to look like as something non-substantial. And there was a very high idealization of the idea how the Western societies function because nothing is as beautiful uh, as the West in the eyes of the Eastern beholder. <laughs> I think it's uh, one of our points is, of course, uh, the Reaganite, Thatcherite uh, form of liberalism was very different than the uh, Rooseveltian, Keynesian social welfare liberalism, which is much more based on a social compact. And the, the Thatcherite, Reaganite liberalism really had behind it the implication that there's no such thing as too much inequality. And that idea became very toxic, of course, in, in the East for the uh, simple reason that the that a, 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 an attempt to become normal, that is to become Western, by imitation was bound, despite what Havel and Micknick thought, was bound to be a radical experiment, which was going to produce outcomes that no one expected. If you take standard model Thatcherite privatization and import it into a country like Hungary with no private capital, the consequence is going to be that the directors of the enterprises are going to use the assets of the enterprise to privatize the public patrimony of the country. And this is a very deep, and of course, the consequence was that some people became very wealthy, some people became very impoverished. You created, you know, you were best friends one day, and uh, the next day, one guy is driving around in a Cadillac, and the other guy can't afford a bus ticket. A lot of internal tensions. And the um, uh, this particularly was a challenge to the liberal idea, because liberalism is based on the notion that the main form of abuse is the violation of individual rights. But the privatization of the public patrimony did not violate anyone's individual rights because the wealth was public. It belonged to the country. And then it was privatized. That is, it became protected by a liberal idea, individual property rights. So the that perversity really created the background for the, the discrediting. I think this is like the discrediting or the undermining of the value of the exported liberalism to explain and to be a framework with which political actors could help their own societies get through this period. So liberalism, partly for this reason, and just one other thing, if I could say, because it's important for our argument in the book, that in 1989, the main liberty being offered by the West to the East Europeans was the freedom to leave your country. What's happened in countries where there's a hemorrhaging of youth, particularly young people who've been educated, who know foreign languages, who go to work abroad, there's a sense that you're being, of uh, those who stay, of being left behind. And certainly they can't identify freedom with the power, the right to leave your country. That is an injury. So these two deep liberal values, the protection of rights, individual rights, and the freedom to leave your country have become in this East European setting, sources of resentment. Now, that is something you, we could never have imagined in 1989. And that was something we did not see coming. Uh, we, and therefore, we didn't predict the form of politics of grievance that arose out of it. Because yeah. it, and, and it, for me, this is critically important. Listen, from personal point of view, from individual point of view, opening of the borders is the best that happened to all of us. If you go in the surveys and ask people what you gain most, 
from 1989, majority of responses in every single Central and East European country is opening of the border. But if you're going to ask the questions, what in a certain way hurt your society most, is basically opening of the borders. Because suddenly, your kids, your doctors, your professionals have left. Because, listen, this is the paradox of the liberal revolutions. Revolutionaries always want to live in the future. And if the future of Poland is Germany, why to wait for Poland to become like Germany and not simply to move to Germany? Ivan, do you want to do you want to just connect it to the the state of the Bulgarian healthcare system, um, just to yeah, bring it yeah, even more personal? From this point of view, COVID nineteen is a great example of this, uh, because uh, now when the COVID nineteen came, suddenly we started to be very much interested how our national health services looked like, and what Bulgarians discovered is that more than fifty percent of the Bulgarian medical personnel is older than fifty. And, and this is regardless of the fact that Bulgaria is producing a lot of doctors and nurses every year because we have all these medical universities, because all these young doctors, they immediately move to practice and to work in the West. So suddenly, if you're living particularly in the countryside, you have the feeling that European Union opening of the borders, this newly get freedom, uh, they're great, but they're depriving you of your kids and of your doctors. And this is a huge story to understand why some of the populist parties managed to get political support totally based on the idea of the resentment, resenting the revolutions that everybody loved. Yeah. And of course, you can't stop them from going. That would be such a, what it would take to say, no, you may not leave your country. You must stay here because that's such a deep idea of what individual freedom is about, uh, to practice your profession and so forth. Uh, so, on, so you can, but you can see it's a it's a paradox, and it's uh, and I think even parents who are in a way proud of their kids who got a medical degree and are now practicing medicine in Berlin, I think they're proud, but they are also uh, you know sorrowful and resentful and unhappy, and they say, but don't come back. It's so bad here. But why don't you come back? I mean, it, it produces these paradoxes, and this kind of psychological trauma cannot be reduced to neoliberalism. I mean, uh, uh, neoliberalism, we were, I mentioned it before, the Thatcherite illusion and so forth, particularly in a society that does, has no private capital, of course, and this idea that there's inequality, ha- has no downsides, no political downsides, of course, there's, that's a, a, an issue and a problem. But much of the psychological trauma produced by the transition can't be traced to this economic ideology I mean, for example, you get multi-speed uh, modernization in these post-communist countries where people who are like journalists became very quickly westernized. But, you know, people working in the, proc- in the uh, prosecutor's office, it took them decades. And this mo- it produced all kinds of disharmonies and disconjunctions. That's a very particular thing. And that's not neoliberalism. It's fine. That's like, I know it's the root of all evil in the world, but it doesn't explain this. And it's, this is very important for us because the economic downturn in Hungary was not replicated in Poland. Poland had an economic success, uh, pretty good economic development, and it has the same kind of populism. So we're, we're not dismissing the economic factors, but the book really is focusing on what we think is, has not been attended to the most. And what we, we are saying, we did not anticipate the psychological factors that created this politics of resentment, we didn't see coming. Nobody can understand, particularly the East European part, 
if you don't understand that the best and the worst is the same thing. This the psychological story you tell in the light that failed, I find to be the most original and, and most engaging part of the book. I also find it compelling myself, but it leaves me with a troubling question. If the appeal of Orban or Kaczynski or Trump is primarily psychological and their voters don't actually expect the material quality of their lives to improve under their leadership. Is there anything that, that, that actually could turn voters against them? I mean, this 40% for Trump has been incredibly stable in the U.S. It does not mean that there was no, particularly in the case of the Law and Justice Party in Poland, they come with a social policy, by the way, policies which normally you expect from the left-wing Social Democratic Party, which always worked. They basically redistributed public wealth, and this gave them certain support. And if you basically look uh, who voted for them, this type of a social policies mattered. But secondly, what is interesting with this psychology of resentment is that part of the thing that brought populists to power is also thing that destroys them. Because the resentment against the populists is coming also in place because they cannot solve this basic contradiction. People want to have the right to leave the country and to travel freely and to have a liberal freedoms for themselves. But they're very much afraid that this type of freedoms are going to destroy the cohesion of their societies. And the populists cannot solve this problem. And this is why what we have now in Central and Eastern Europe is a kind of a new type of a liberalism, which is much more rooted in the resentment against the populist politics, the way basically uh, they talk, the way you're dividing society. For example, the vote for the new mayor of Budapest or for the new president of Slovakia is this type of a new liberalism. And what is interesting, both of them do not speak English. This is not about any more imitating the West. It is very much basically, if populism brought resentment and was politically empowered by resentment, so now you have the anti-populist resentment in making. Populism is producing its own resentments, just like liberalism did, and that's, of course, natural. Every political order produces disappointment and disillusion. So I don't think it's it's not going to conquer the world, but I just want to underline two things Ivan said. One is that the difference between Kaczynski and Trump is that Trump is, Trump's democracy is really just a democracy of fans. This is Ivan's phrase, a democracy like of sports fans. Now, the sports fans don't have any material benefit from their team winning, but they just enjoy watching him. There is a parallel which struck me the other day because the Archbishop of Krakow recently said that in 2050, the white people of Europe will all be living on reservations. That's an amazing thing for a bishop to say. Now, this is like that. That is, the Trump supporters have this anxiety that they feel like white lumps of sugar that are going to dissolve in brown cups of coffee, that they're going to be, their identity is going to be destroyed, and that uh, that whole the world is dissolving around them, that their you know, white supremacy sounds like a ridiculous thing to be. Uh, um, uh, as, a, as a political project, of course, it's pointless. But if it's appealing to a sense, we're losing our white supremacy and uh, I'm going to voice your anxiety about that, that you can get votes that way. I and mean, of course, you can't actually implement it. You can't uh, uh, recreate an all-white America. This is not possible. Uh, but you can uh, uh, touch that nerve uh, that something is disappearing. Now, in Poland which is an ethnically homogeneous society, that is a project you can say we're going to keep out the foreigners, and they have, more or less. Now, when people talk about diversity, cultural, ethnic, religious diversity, it's very important to look at the maps of Europe. If you look, 
the ethnic map of Europe of year 1900, you're going to see two Europes. One was very much diverse culturally, ethnically, religiously, and this was Central and Eastern Europe. And then one was quite ethnically homogeneous, and it was Western Europe, Germany, France. Now, if you see at the same ethnic map, you're going to see how much diverse Western Europe is and how ethnically homogeneous Central and Eastern Europe is. Because all 20th century, Central and Eastern Europe, the movement of population was about ethnic homogenization. It was revolutions, wars. And by the way, it was not done by East Europeans. The, uh, the destruction of the Jews, the expulsion of the Germans. And suddenly, to be European for Central Europeans means to be ethnically homogeneous. And then comes 1989 and tells you, listen, with this ethnic homogeneity, you're not European anymore. And you should try to see this kind of a major change of paradigm that is coming from all these people that have been frozen uh, during the Cold War when they discovered that probably the West is very different than the West they have been thinking about. Do you know what is interesting? When we see the Central and East Europeans are very much close now and they're not allowing foreigners and you know what was the reaction of Central and Eastern Europe during the refugee crisis of 2015. But here's one more paradox. Do you know which is the European Union member states that got, got most labor migrants for the last three years? Poland. Two million Ukrainians are working in Poland and you are going to say Ukrainians, cultural proximity. But this same Poland that was totally against getting 10,000 Syrians now have 20,000 Pakistanis working there. And I do believe this schizophrenia of the transition, in one level, you don't want something because this destroys your identity. But on the other side, you want it because this is what the modern society is. This type of a very painful feeling of that not everything is like we expected it to be created this absolute atmosphere in which comes the populist party, some of them with a totally symbolic politics. And people said probably they don't have a solution, but at least they express the anxiety uh, uh, which we feel. It is quite important to understand the anti-meritocratic nature of all these type of populist movements. They're not against the rich, but they're against the rich who got their money through a very good education and basically networks that they made in a big universities. And also they discovered that this type of a global elites, they're mobile. They can leave, always can leave. So if you see the language of populist parties, and this is true for Kaczynski, this is true for Orban, this is true for everybody, they talk about society as a family. I'm with you not because you deserve, but because you are one of me. While basically, uh, the liberal talk about society, particularly this meritocratic talk, is society as a school. We all are in school. Some of us are doing better than others. And those who physically are losing have no right. Even personally, I discovered it as a major difference uh, in the way of communication between the generation of my parents and my generation. Listen, in the generation of my parents, 60% of the time, they have been communicating uh, with relatives from all over. I mean, being a relative means that if somebody is coming to Sofia from the countryside, he had the feeling that he has the right to stay in our house. Now, 95% of my communication is friends. Friends and colleagues, no relatives anymore. But because of these relatives, these relatives are coming from different social groups. They're not competing with each other. Uh, it was a kind of a much more different type of cohesion. And this divide between educated and uneducated, between the urban centers and the rural centers, this is the biggest kind of a divide that you see, at least in the European politics. 
We were talking earlier about this idea of uh, sort of like the, the the most ambitious and educated leaving. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the uh, scholars who you point to a number of times over your book is Albert Hirschman, of course, um, who laid out the exit voice uh, and loyalty, the exit voice loyalty paradigm of like, what do you do when you're faced in a challenge and you're in a group? Um uh, it, it seems that when 1989 fell, everyone who could in that sparked this resentment you guys walked through. Um, in, in China, of course, there was also a, an increasing exodus of, um, you know, first tens and then hundreds and hundreds of thousands of the smartest, most connected, uh, most ambitious students uh, looking to get their education abroad and increasingly live abroad. Do you have any sense of why the dynamics played out in the Chinese case, which didn't necessarily engender the sorts of resentments that you see um, you know, for instance, in the Bulgarian uh, hospital system. Uh, listen, uh, of course, uh, I'll start with something which is very obvious, but in my view, it's very important. It's the size. China is 1 billion people and Bulgaria is 8 million people. So when somebody is leaving the country, and this is critically important, let's give you the example of Bulgaria or Romania. Around 15% of the population left and basically also because of aging and not so kind of a long life expectancy, you see also a major shrinking of the population, loss of population. In 1989, there were 9 million people living in Bulgaria. Now they're around 7 million. By the way, the very loss of population is perceived as a defeat. But when somebody is leaving, uh, many things happen at the same time. First, with him are leaving all the money that he's been invested in his education. So paradoxically, the movement of people from east to the west is also the transfer of money from the east to the west. Secondly, it's not simply young people living, they're also voters living. When people are saying why basically uh, the liberal parties are not doing particularly well in Central and Eastern Europe, the reason is that they are voters in Berlin, in London, in New York. If you see what is the major difference in the way people are voting who are living in the country and outside of the country, Romania is the greatest example. The major breakthrough, the all liberal candidates, for example, the current president, have been elected only because you have a very high uh, turnout among the diaspora voters. Uh, so suddenly, the problem of the exit is also psychologically changing the idea of success. Listen, imagine that you're a professor or middle-class business person and so on, and you're doing well in your country. But you're living in a country in which most of the others of your friends want to live. How relevant is your success if there is basically success in a place that others want to leave? And I do believe these aspects was something that was totally underestimated because uh, mostly the talk about Central and Eastern Europe was a talk either about principles or about institutions. Suddenly, we were not very much interesting about the experience of people. And this experience is contradictory because they like the things, they like European Union. Do you know that Poland and Hungary are two of European societies where the support for the EU is highest? And at the same time, they vote for governments, which are very much Eurosceptical. If we cannot mm. make that- Another interesting thought on this is in terms of the exit question, you know, after 1989, like if you were sort of open minded and, and, and liberal and you were smart enough and going into the late 90s and early 2000s, if you had money, then you could achieve a life in the US and Canada and UK and vote with your feet and that sort of and that makes the life of the CCP easier sort of in the way that Castro did in the 60s and 70s of letting everyone who potentially wanted to change the system to just say goodbye. One of the reasons why the level of caution 
in the Russian political regime is relatively low for the Russian standards is, in fact, the open borders. You don't need to send everybody who disagrees to Siberia because 90% of them will go to London anyway. The exit, paradoxically, opening of the borders started to work for certain types of authoritarian regimes. Uh, and they start very kind of uh, uh, smartly using this, saying you don't like here, go there. Nobody is stopping you. And the very individualization, the idea of the liberalism being about individual rights, and uh, it doesn't matter where I am, my homeland is where I feel okay, uh, makes it very easy. Because if you go in the book of Exit Voice and Loyalty, and we have been rereading it with Stephen a lot, one of the interesting stories is that Hirschman is not defining much what loyalty means, because he was taking it for granted. For his generation, it was obvious that it is not easy to leave your political party. It is not easy to leave your religion. It is not easy to leave your marriage. But we are now living in the world. All these three things are quite easy. Please subscribe to Chat and Talk at glow.fm slash Talk. Also, hire me. Preferably full-time, but consulting gigs work too. My email is in the show notes. Thanks so much. Coming back to the psychological challenges the imitation imperative puts on a country. I'm curious if you have any thoughts of Japan post-1945. I don't know if you've, if that um, played any role in your research or if this is something you guys are comfortable or talking about, but it seems like a, a bit of an exception to the rule in which they, um, you know, that country has had a, has had a, you know, a very, uh, sort of unique relationship with um, with imitation uh, and the West since the mid 1800s, and the fact that they were able to pull out of uh, uh, World War II and and sort of reshape a narrative which didn't lead to these sorts of psychological scars is a is an interesting contrast to what we're seeing in Eastern Europe. Can I? Can I my knowledge of Japan is lower than zero. So from this point of view, what okay. I'm saying should be discounted. But there are two things that I find critically important. It is. One thing to basically imitate somebody who defeated you. So the idea of a victory, very much also perceived as a military victory and so on. And basically you're defeated and you're understanding that there is a system that proved it. In the case of Central and Eastern Europe, the idea was that it was our common victory. I mean, uh, dissidents on the East and uh, what is happening to the West. But secondly, and much more important, the most difficult to imitate is people who are culturally close to you. For the Poles and for the Germans, imitation is much more complex than for the Japanese, for whom basically the Western culture is a foreign culture. So you can imitate without losing your identity, while basically it is much more difficult uh, for the East Europeans, and I do believe this also explains much more the animosity of Russia with respect to the West and, for example, with respect to China, because in a certain way there is no Russians that wants to become Chinese. Even if they like basically the political system, they don't feel cultural affinity. The problem of imitating your neighbor is that this is a much more psychologically tense relationship. So let's spend a little more time uh, on Russia's experience with all of it. How did something that you just pointed to, Ivan, not actually being um, defeated and the legacy of the Soviet Union impact the way Russia processed liberalism post-1989? Listen, in 1989-1990, the Western leaders contrary to what is said today, were not this kind of a stupid triumphalists. But for them, it was very important to try to avoid the problem of Versailles. So the message was, this was our common victory. 
This was the victory of both East and West against the communism. And for the Russians, the biggest problem was that on the one level, they liked the narrative, but on the other, they cannot find themselves in the narrative. Because if you don't know anything about Russia and you're just going to see what happened on economic and the social side for the 1990s, you're going to see a country that fits exactly what is a country being defeated in a war. They lost one third of the economy. They lost seven years when it comes to the life expectancy. And basically, they lost social status. And what is extremely important, they lost the country. So uh, one of the most misinterpreted things when you try to understand why the Russians basically uh, went behind Putin uh, in the 21st century is to understand that there are quite few Russians that were really nostalgic about communism, but there were many of them that have been against communism, but that they wanted to keep the Soviet Union. And this kind of a loss of a country, a story in which something that was taught as a victory turned to be defeat and humiliation, and then comes the political leader and said, I'm going to get Russia out of its knees. This was quite important because this type of a resentment, not simply the resentment that you have lost without being militarily defeated, but somebody was telling you that victory is something that you feel like defeat, also personally for social and economic reasons, this is where Putin comes from. And by the way, this is why Trump felt psychologically so close to Putin, because for him, America's story is not different than the Russian story. He said, American elites are telling the American people that we have been the winners of the post-Cold War period, but in fact, we have been the losers, and we are celebrating our own defeat as victory. So this story of... Mixing victory and defeat, in my view, is very important to understand the psychological roots of uh, uh, Russian society's support for Putin, particularly in the beginning of uh, this century. One thing we haven't talked about too much is the sort of role of Western advisors in uh, their interactions with these states as they were trying to shape their institutions. Can you talk about what role they played and what sort of misinterpretations of the situation and mistakes of attitude that helped lead to the situation we're in today? Well, I have a couple examples of the legal profession. Um, In Albania in the early 1990s, Uh, the American Bar Association had sent a mission to Tirana, and they discovered that uh, judges who were causing problems for the the government were being dismissed without cause. And this scandalized the American legal advisors, and they formulated a constitutional-level law that said judges uh, could not be dismissed uh, except for high crimes and misdemeanors. And this, shockingly, this law was actually incorporated within the Albanian constitutional laws. And from that point on, judges were no longer dismissed without charge. They were charged with crimes and imprisoned. So this was the consequence of the great legal reform. So if you go into a, it's like the famous introducing a rabbit into the Galapagos Islands. You you take a, a principle from your own society and your own legal environment and try to introduce it into another in which you do not understand the array of forces. You don't understand on whose side you're fighting and which side you're against and and, uh, what people are doing with those external uh, rules that are going to have a very different consequence. There are so many examples of this kind, uh, of the distortions that occur. 
For another uh, very classic example is try, uh, introducing American-style bankruptcy law in a country in countries. This is true in Russia in the early '90s, where everything, all the transactions were occurred in barter, and so country all companies were in fact bankrupt in some legal sense. If you, but of course they were functioning in their way, but it was a misfit. So there are many of these. We exported anti-discrimination law. We tried to American lawyers did. In countries where the problem wasn't discrimination, it was clientage and patronage. These are just like misunderstanding the social environment. So there was a rage to export uh, worked out models of legal rights and so forth, which don't, they didn't fit. I'll give you one last example. There was a, a Swedish human rights group that went into northern, went into Romania in a place where the villagers had burned out the gypsy community. And the Swedish human rights organization said, look, if you went to the gypsies, said, if you would uh, work with us, we'll go to court. We're going to sue your neighbors. And if you and if you work with us uh, to do this, we're going to build your houses back for you. So the first thing that happened was the community was split. I mean, these gypsy communities, mind you, are, are communities that give girl names to boy children to avoid the draft and so on. So they're, they don't want to have contact with the law. Law is something that uh, forces you, even defending your rights, forces you to tell where you live, what is your job, how many children you have. This is something they don't want to do. That by, that's the way the communities survive. Protecting their rights is dragging them in to this world. And so, uh, mm. and of course, the human rights organization then left a few years later, leaving these gypsies to, alone with their neighbors. One more time, they just sued in court. There are hundreds of examples of this kind of mismatch, not understanding well enough that the texture of the social reality and trying to bring in from outside. Uh, we write in the book about anti-corruption uh, principles, which uh, you know are uh, certainly morally uh, praiseworthy, but in certain contexts, they are, are not functional because the societies operate this way. Uh, and and you, if you try to stop on your own, unless you're going to abolish corruption across the board, you're going to be, uh, you won't be able to function in that society. No, for me, there is something very important because this book, uh, unlike many others, is not who is guilty for what happened. Listen, many of these advisors were extremely well-meaning, idealistic people who really wanted to help. But See, once Steven you, seems like a nice guy. Yeah, exactly. And basically, you come and you try to do something. But what you're doing is first you're universalizing your experience to the extent that basically uh, the model is totally divorced by the social reality that has produced it. For example, when it comes to the very discriminated Roma community in Central and Eastern Europe, it was immediately seen as this is the East European blacks. Uh, and the model became the civil rights movement. Uh, so on the other side, what is happening with this type of an advisors, when they go and they basically start uh, seeing the world with the eyes of the advisors, and paradoxically, after 1989, every Westerner who goes to the East was a kind of an advisor, even if he does not work this, you also stop to understand your own system. Because exporting your own system, you're idealizing it very much. For example, people are going to tell you in the United States, basically the nominations in the Supreme Court, they're totally non-political. These people basically does not, this is a neutral institution. And then basically you're understanding that one of the most important things in every presidential elections is who is going to win to appoint his judge in the Supreme Court. So suddenly, uh, the, many of the Western societies because of trying to transform the East, stop to understand themselves because 
lack the critical perspective to their own problems. And I do yeah. one of the problems that you see in the United States, United Kingdom, in Europe, is very much the result of it. It's not simply that you got wrong the East. You started basically not to understand your own society. It's a fascinating thought and and the interaction, thinking about this, comparing the interaction that uh, China had with its Western advisors. Of course, it started earlier, right? So Deng was bringing in folks back in the even the late 70s and 80s. Um, but the sorts of things that the political discourse allowed them to advise on was mostly economic. And they would have uh, you know, they would have people giving, you know, basic 101 lessons in, um, you know, market economics and how to how to run a central bank and 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 whatnot. But um, they were never looking for a, a complete system because the leadership, of course, was willing willing to kill to keep the CCP in power. Um, and when you sort of have that bound uh, of of what you're looking to the Westerners for, you're 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 not going to be hit with this sort of disappointment, which inevitably comes in the late 90s and and 2000s when when you don't end up getting the idealized version of uh, you know Jeffersonian democracy. Yeah, so I, I wanted to um, ask about this. Um this theme of complacency, you know, that the, that, you know, pervaded U.S. Um, politics in the early 90s and, and really throughout the post-Cold War period. Um, you know, I feel like reflecting on U.S. foreign policy over the last four, uh, 30 years, it's easy to feel a bit perplexed. You know, what, why did U.S. leaders focus so much time, energy and resources on problems whose connection to the well-being of the American people um, feels kind of remote? Um, do you think this has something to do with this complacency that you're mentioning um, and that the conviction that our version of liberalism had already been perfected? This is something incredible because this is part of the old missionary impulse, which always was part of the American society. And in a certain way, this was one of the charming characteristics of the United States. But when you go, basically, when you become a missionary and you go somewhere and you basically try to spread the religion, you're basically uh, trying to divorce yourself from what you know about the religion, how it functions in your own society, because you're tr spreading the ideal. And I do believe one of the things that happened is that uh, for a lot of people going outside of the United States, be it Eastern Europe, be Africa, and so on, was much more psychologically satisfactory. There is one important thing about our story of imitation that we found critically important. Listen, people would say, oh, the West colonized the East. This is not this. This is not this. Of course, there was the power symmetry. Of course, there was a situation in which America can ask certain governments to buy their F-16s. But the most important was, first, it was on a demand. Particularly in Eastern Europe, we wanted to be like the West. But secondly, on Western Europe, many of the people came to Bulgaria or to Romania to do something that from time to time they're missing in the United States themselves. But going there, the view of the United States changed. Because if everybody wants to be like you, you should be fine. Being the model is very seductive. So in a certain way, I do believe that the West saw the dark side of its own seduction. And basically, this is why many people are so shocked uh, to see what is the state of the Western democracies at this very moment. I, I remember I once was, uh, for, by chance, I was asked by Justice Kennedy to go to his chambers at the Supreme Court when I was living in Washington. And I didn't have any idea why he was doing that. I didn't know him from Adam, but he knew that I had been studying Russia. And he said, and I went in, I sat there, and he came out and he said, Well, I'd like to talk to you. And I said, Well, let's find justice about what? He said, Well, I'm going to I'm going to Moscow and I'm going to give a lecture. He said, oh, I said, Well, that's very nice. And well, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to teach them about judicial independence. I'm going to teach them how great it is. And 
So I want them to know that they should be like us. That was his thing. And you can see, you can see that although judicial independence, first of all, as Avon said, it's very political. Judges are political appointees. There's a lot of things to, it's an ideology anyway, but he was freed from all of that by going to a foreign venue, talking about it as if it was some kind of pure ideal. And he could talk about it in the most ideal way abroad because all the realities of it were left behind. And people who knew what it meant were also not there to criticize him. So I think the pleasure of proselytizing Western institutions, that's what Ivan has just said, is partly that you can gloat in this idealized version. And it, the more you do that, the less you understand your own society. And I think that's part of what we were saying, that the, the post-89 uh, not that we imposed our, ourselves particularly well or if convincingly anywhere, but it allowed us to have a fantasy. It allowed us not to be chastened, to not have a sense of the imperfections of our own order, which during the Cold War, uh, because we were being challenged, and be, uh, as you know, the civil rights movement, there's a, there's a whole literature on the, the, uh, the influence of the Cold War on the civil rights movement because we were being beaten up internationally by the way white Americans were treating blacks. And there was a sense that we have to do something about this as a matter of national security. So once that's gone, the Cold War competition is gone, the, cha- the sense that there's a, uh, perhaps an idea of equality that's not being realized particularly well in the United States, although other things are, other ideals are realized but not that. And therefore we need to have, we have, there's a level of self-doubt or self-questioning that goes along with uh, competition with, uh, with another power. Once that, that other power is viewed as defeated and we as victorious, as having vanquished them, then this sense of, of self-questioning is, uh, I don't say disappeared, but really its, uh, its presence is, is uh, diminished. I know in your book, um, you two are, are very critical of the idea that there is you know, burgeoning ideological competition between the United States and China or, or uh, democracy and authoritarianism writ large. Um, I guess the question I have is, you know, uh, given what you just mentioned, Steve, um, do you think there's, there's any utility perhaps for like the impetus for domestic reform in the United States to ha- to sort of foreground uh, competition with China in, in U.S. politics? Um, and, and also, are you concerned about the prospect of China um, trying to spread its sort of authoritarian um, capitalism model around the world? Well, just one, I mean, uh, 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 after Guantanamo, the, the high ground of being able to, let's all of us look at the Chinese prison system and see how they actually treat their prisoners. That would be I think a very, if you're going to have an ideological conflict, a conflict of values, let's put it, wouldn't exactly say ideology, but a value system, how you treat people who are accused of crimes and so forth. That's a very important, and that's something that touches individuals' lives. This would have been, this is a very good, and it could be an impetus to a reform in America because our prisons are an unbelievable scandal, the American prison system. So if we uh, would enter into a value controversy with China of on this level, that could be an impetus uh, to reform in America. I don't, you know, certainly we're not, it's not going to happen uh, under this uh, administration, but that would be a possibility. Of course, they're authoritarian, they're, un, they're anti-liberal, but it looks to us, and we are amateurs in this, that China is looking to create a world that is 
uh, congenial to its interests. And it's perfectly happy. It doesn't need, if it's going to buy or rent the port of Piraeus and it wants to do the same with Trieste or whatever it's doing, it doesn't need to reform the Greek and Italian political systems. It has no need to do that. Um, it's a, it just is, wants to make a deal and maybe can pay people off and can uh, and so forth. And the relation between, you know, a tributary, you know, having vassals, uh, having tri- a tributary system doesn't require uh, mimicry of the metropole. While the Cold War, uh, uh, of course, we did that too. South America, we didn't like promote democracy in South America in the Cold War. We just wanted regimes that were doing what we wanted. Uh, and we're anti-communist, but we didn't care that they were democracies. We did in, in Germany, which was the forefront of the Cold War. Of course, we need we needed to do it because we were trying to uh, you know, what it meant to uh, export liberal, liberal, and even social democratic, uh, labor union, uh, uh, co-determination, all of those really old Roosevelt-style New Deal kinds of liberalisms. Was that was to prevent the German. Uh, working class from defecting to communism. So we had, it was a competitive reform, reform under conditions of competition. I think that was very particular, but I think in, in China, I mean, as far as we understand there, they want some vassals, they want power, they want authority, but, and maybe they, and certainly they don't, they're anti-liberal in the sense that anyone in the world who criticizes them should be shut up in any way they can. If you criticize Xi, you should be in prison. And if you're an Australian journalist and you criticize Xi and you're in China or even in Hong Kong, they can arrest you and put you someplace. So, but yeah. uh, crit, criticize, I think st- uh, uh, st- you know, crushing or st- uh, stamping down on any criticism of the regime, but it's not, they're not ideological deviants. They're not, the people they're, they're, they're imprisoning aren't heterodox. They're not deviating from an orthodoxy. What they're doing is criticizing she and saying that she has not handled COVID well or she has, you know, been is himself, whatever it is. They're not. But it's not about an uh, an ideology. Of course, it's about his power. Yeah. But you tell us because you guys. Know yeah. Better. I mean, it's 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 a it's a debatable thing. And um, I, I understand you guys aren't experts and I want to I don't want to give you the sort of uh, but, but listen, I, I don't I don't want to put you on this. I don't want to get into. Yeah, yeah. No, know. I just wanted to make one thing because we are not simply not experts on China. We knew it very well. Why for us China was important because there was one communism was a radical experiment. And by the way, radical experiment rooted in the European Enlightenment and both the Soviet regime and the American liberalism were transformative regimes. You believe that modern societies are going to be like you. Because this is, in a certain way, modernization theory was very powerful both on the Soviet and on the American side, but they have a different idea what the final destination is. What struck us with China was that China is a very hegemonic power, that basically they uh, believe that they should dominate the world, but they are not a classical transformative power. In a certain way, and I do believe part of it comes from their complex of superiority. They don't believe that anybody can be like China, uh, which is very different. Americans were much more egalitarian. You believe that this is possible because America was a melting pot in which people coming from all parts of the world were coming to America and they were becoming Americans. Uh, And I do believe from this point of view, our major point was, yes, of course, they're going to sell their technologies for control. People are going to imitate their economic policies and so on. But it is not about making others to dream becoming 
like China. The story is that they simply want hegemonically to control the world. From this point of view, the rivalry is going to have, of course, ideological aspect because we are very different. We have a different values, but we don't see China as a transformative power in the way the Soviet Union was or the United States is. Unlike, I mean, uh, let me throw a few counterexamples, counterarguments, and then maybe have you guys uh, respond to them or or take the hypothetical of like, if you're wrong, then what then what happens to the West and liberalism? So first off, we have argument that like she isn't particularly ideological. And I think given the fear he's expressed about liberal ideas, the way he's trying to put the party back in the center of, of the education system and, um, you know, a, 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 an increasing push towards um, having more and more sort of party run and state run influence in the pri- in private life, both both culturally and, and economically, that there is um, what, what I think you guys miss is there's a superiority complex of, yeah, we are 5000 years of Chinese history, like we we still read Confucius and no one in the West reads ancient Greek, but there's also a bit of an inferiority complex of, uh, you know, we had this uh, hundred years of humiliation and look how far we fell from the great Tang Song, you know, Ming dynasty era to, um, to, to really being on our knees in the, in the first half of the 20th century. And you also see this sort of ideological inferiority playing out in the incredible overreaction that you've seen in, in, in Western China, where any sort of, um, you, you, you know, other Chinese empires historically have been able to interact with their minorities uh, in, a, in a much more comfortable way than she who saw a population which wasn't, you know, 100% on board with uh, the way he wanted to lead China and decided to throw, you know, a million and a half people in, uh, in indefinite detention in order to sort of stamp that out. The other thing I think which is throws a bit of a wrench in the in the thesis of China not necessarily, you know, wanting to keep itself safe and, and not export its ideology is the thought that, um, you know, keeping itself, I think there's a different definition of uh, what she believes as keeping himself safe. And uh, you sort of hinted at it, Stephen, and what you were talking about earlier is it's not just the Australian uh, reporter in China. It's also, you know, the MBA and Western discourse. China was not trying to pull this stuff in the 1990s, right? Because its leaders knew that it didn't have the sort of wherewithal to really influence um, opinion abroad. But if you're a sort of uh, regime that sees uh, you know, the Falun Gong as an existential threat and is going to, you know, send uh, security, uh, state security all around the world to sort of like infiltrate it, which means, um, you know, necessarily violating uh, the principles that that we hold in the West to be true um, and sees the sort of like human rights promotion that the U.S. does sort of de rigueur um, as something that is incredibly aggressive. You're going to end up doing things. And, and also, if you're a society that uh, or, or if you're a if you're a government that sees uh, a diaspora community as something thing to sort of be um, to be leveraged, uh, then you're going to end up running into these uh, values contradictions where the CCP is increasingly going to make demands on on the U.S. and on uh, sort of Western societies in general, which whatever vestiges of liberalism are left is going to very is going to have a very hard time stomaching. So um, maybe I'll just leave it there. And if you guys want to respond to any of it, by the way, and I do believe probably you're right. And uh, by the way, don't forget that for us, the China chapter was slightly a functional one. Uh, 
Uh, this is not simply because we don't know Ch- uh, uh, China, but we also put, wanted to put it to send one major message, and this is that certain period has ended, and the rise of China basically is touching on it. We even, first of all, we believe both of us that China is a very aggressive world power, and from this point of view, this is. But what was interesting for us, and we look at Chinese Communist Party at the end of 1980s. And the Soviet Communist Party under Gorbachev, it was interesting to see what they decided to preserve from the old system. So Gorbachev believed that the tragedy of the Soviet Union was the communist power, which was dysfunctional, inefficient, corrupt. But what really matters was the ideology, the Soviet idea of socialism. Uh, Well, on the Chinese side, we saw just the opposite. They saw that ideology didn't work, but what was really important was the power. And in my view, this is why we probably can be wrong on Xi, but okay, probably he's more ideological. What is going to be the next leader? If you have a classical ideological regime, of course they're ideological in a different way, but Brezhnev was not simply an authoritarian leader. Chernenko was not simply an authoritarian leader. All his view of the world is based on the idea that future belongs to communism. And this is what, for me, is much more kind of a interesting about China, because obviously they try to, first of all, protect any criticism against them. And here you are absolutely right. This is interference in the life uh, of American or Bulgarian society. But listen, they don't care Bulgaria to be governed by a party which is based on the model of the Chinese Communist Party, which was going to be the Mao idea. They simply want Bulgarian government to do what China wants them to do. It's interesting thinking about sort of like how Gorbachev came to be created in the Soviet system um, and the, the frustration and disillusionment that it took in order to, um, you know, have someone with his sort of ideological background rise to the top. And I think those sort of ingredients are very different from what you're seeing in China today. The thesis uh, was not that there is no Obviously, there's indoctrination within China, and in this sense, ideological, some kind of ideological conformity being requested. It was that the international conflict between the U.S. and China is not going to be a conflict between two powers, each of which is trying to replicate its system. So it was about the nature of the conflict between the U.S. and China. And as far as I can see, I mean, as an outsider observing this, what China is doing is not trying to seduce people or maybe it is, but, but as you tell me, the bullying, the ramming of the fishing boats, the building of the those islands, the, the damming of the river, the, they're doing a lot of things which are just very heavy handed. They're saying, if you don't act the way we want, we're going to hurt you. That's not like ideological seduction. I mean, it's really, there's a threatening bullying quality to their expansionist agenda, which doesn't fit with, you know, selling a a worldview, even though they can point out, I'm sure happily, how dysfunctional America is and how liberal systems are a mess. Uh, but uh, as Avon said, I don't, at least I think that's one way of thinking about this. But would you disagree? You can make a distinction. They, they indoctrinate. And they have, a na- of course, nationalist party, whatever it is, the conf- whatever their idea of the Chinese way is internally. But they don't define their battle with, uh, with the West the way the Soviets did. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard. You know, China, China contains multitudes, right? And it's hard to sort of like take yeah, one data point and say, oh, you know, this is this is this is our conclusion. So I don't know if I can like 
necessarily sum up uh, on that. But I, I guess, you know, coming back to like what it would take for a ruling party to fall out of love with the, um, uh, you know, with the system that they've been living under and, um, you know, reflecting on, you know, when, if and when, uh, a, a Gorbachev-esque figure could emerge within the CCP. I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on um, maybe reflecting back to the Soviet experience and the, the experience of, of Eastern European leaders, like what um, would need to be in place for uh, a reform movement, which she has done a pretty aggressive job of stamping out over the past um, uh, 10 years uh, to, to, to reemerge within the Communist Party. Uh, listen, what is interesting for me, and as I said, you, uh, I, I don't believe that even I can uh, convincingly argue what, or anything, but what struck me, and this is the major difference with, uh, with what we saw in the, in the Soviet experience. What was important, for example, about the dissident movements? The dissidents were normally ex-communists who basically started to attack the system from the point of view of ideology. They were telling to the communists that not communism is bad, but the communist party is not the real, that it's the bad communist party, that it is false. So in a certain way, many of these people started as a true believers. And after that, of course, they very much uh, developed in a different direction. They ended up as uh, the major critics of communism. But for them, kind of the promise of communism was very strong. And I don't know to what extent this is there. For me, the biggest problem of the West with China on ideological level is that China challenged the most fundamental assumptions of 1989. And this is that capitalism brings democracy in a certain way. And, and just to supplement that, it also undermines the ideology that explained why America beat um, uh, uh, both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. We thought... Well, because we're democratic, we're prosperous. It's, it's because we're democratic that we are prosperous. And, and that's, in a way, the flip side of saying that if we become economically developed, we will become democratic. But it's, it's, it turns out that the reason uh, uh, that we uh, probably prevailed with Russia's help over, over Nazi Germany was that Nazi Germany was small, not that it was uh, autocratic. So... It's interesting, Yvonne, you mentioned uh, how the, the sort of like dissidence and the critique from the left was the one that ended up sort of resonating the most. She has definitely internalized that. And the fear of like a like a proper Marxist critique of the of the contemporary uh, CCP is 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 had a really aggressive, uh, you know, has been pursued really aggressively. I remember back when I was on a PKU campus in 2017, 2018, there was like a proper Marxist society, which um, organized a handful of trips where they would go and meet with uh, some factory workers that were striking. And it was really the sort of union of the, of the, of the students and the workers um, in, in, in a, you know, in a, in a proper um, communist sense. And that um, very quickly led to these folks getting kicked off campus, pulled out of their bed, and uh, you know, thrown in indefinite detention, which was a pretty dramatic thing for most of uh, sort of elite Chinese society, which very rarely ends up interacting with the sharp end of the CCP. So um, interesting to see the Eastern European and Russian experience of of that side of the critique is something that she is very much aware aware of and and and, and worried uh, listen, about. If somebody was really studying seriously the collapse of the Soviet Union, this was the Chinese Communist Party. You know this famous uh, six. Uh, 
episodes of documentary which they did and they showed you every single party organization in China. And from this point of view, it's quite interesting because particularly many of the things that uh, I do believe also Chinese are doing is still very much the response, the reaction to what they do believe was wrong and led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, So while for us, all of us, Soviet Union was simply dead and buried, I do believe it is still the collapse of the Soviet Union, a very founding moment for the Chinese to understand what they're doing about their own regime, how they're dealing with the West, why basically the very idea of claiming that you are going to imitate the West is becoming totally eroding and destructive and so on for your own system. And from this point of view, you are also right that even if they're going to be ideology, it's going to be also very different than it was uh, before because they know this important thing. If China is a communist party, you cannot stop people criticizing you from the point of view of a true communism. While in a classical authoritarian regime, uh, basically you don't have a language to criticize power because the major statement of the power is I'm in power because I'm the strongest. Um, I felt I loved your book, but I felt sorry that it went to press before the pandemic because, you know, you have this really, really, I think, compelling argument that, you know, the 2008 financial crisis was this coup de grace for liberalism that really just disillusioned the world and showed that liberalism really wasn't what it wasn't all that, that it was cracked up to be and frankly showed that that Western elites and U.S. leaders you know, didn't have all the answers. Um, I feel like we're seeing something similar now with COVID COVID nineteen. Just you know, the the crisis of competence. I mean, what what effect do you think COVID nineteen will have on the story that you tell in the book? I'll start because in a certain way, there is quite interesting because for the United States. Unfortunately, I do believe that this is going to have extremely. I'm not talking what's going to happen in the United States, but the image of the United States in the world was dramatically changed. I was reading a lot of surveys that have been done in Europe in the last several months. Uh, And we're talking about the most pro-Atlantic countries. It's about Germany, it's about Denmark, it's about Netherlands. And basically you see people, for the first time Europeans felt pity about America. Listen, we have been jealous, we have been admiring America, some have been hating America, but suddenly it was not about American intentions. Suddenly you see it as a dysfunctional society, and of course part of it was Trump, but this time it was not only Trump. This is slightly like the debate we started with, because it is that Trump so much managed to change the way others talk, that what is happening, and this is going to change, because I do believe that hegemony, uh, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. So from this point of view, part of the period that is over is that America was not simply been very attractive for many people in the world, but America was perceived as much more powerful than it was. Uh, because basically people are seeing it through these eyes. And then suddenly America looks weak, dysfunctional. And in my view, this is going to hurt liberalism because basically the idea of America is very much the idea of liberalism. This is also going to change certain power constellations. I also read some polling being done in China. And as a result of the COVID-19, we saw the kind of respect of the Chinese public to the Western moment declining and suddenly they become self-confident about their own moment. But we have been arguing with Stephen also in an article uh, after COVID-19 about something important. Contrary to people who believe that those authoritarian uh, leaders are the most beneficiaries of this, 
too, and by the way, Bolsonaro and Lukashenko, but also Trump, shows that in a certain way this is not the case because the problem with the COVID-19 was that it was an overwhelming crisis. It was everywhere. You cannot ignore it. And for the authoritarian leader, the most important freedom that he wants for himself is the power to decide to which crisis he's going to respond. What authoritarian leaders really like are the crises that they create themselves, the crises that allow them to defeat enemies and not to solve problems. So strangely enough, I do believe this is going to remake the world, but I don't believe that authoritarianism as a whole is going to benefit. There are other things that turn to be much more important, social trust, the functionality of the state. Countries like Denmark or Germany did well. Uh, they responded effectively uh, to the COVID-19. So this was not the general failure of democracy. Taiwan did well. On the other side, China did for the moment well. Vietnam did not badly. So this is an interesting story. And I do believe COVID-19 cannot be summarized as a result of it who is winning, democracy, liberal democracy or authoritarianism. One of the uh, characteristics of these populist regimes is the reward of loyalty over competence. And you see this basically everywhere that the populist leaders don't really like a lot of competent people around them. And when Trump confronted the question, am I going to make COVID the, the greatest problem that America is facing? Am I going to lift it to the level of the main issue of my presidency? He realized quite quickly that he, if he did that, his own talents would be devalued because it, it's a kind of crisis that needs to be dealt with by scientists, doctors, uh, people who logistics, probably the military, others who know how to ramp up production, so forth, of emergency uh, materials. So he downplayed it because the more important COVID was, the less important were his talents and his skills. And then the second thing about democracy is that because democracy is a competitive system and COVID is something that you need a unique, coherent single message. Public health requires a single message. And probably the countries that have succeeded best are those that have one message. Now, in the U.S., the, the competitive messages are partisan. Uh, you know, don't wear masks. He said last night, Biden wears the biggest mask I've ever seen. <laughs> That's like ridiculous. But so there's a, 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 a the plural political pluralism can be damaging when it infiltrates public health messaging. Now, in France, it's not partisan, but there's a competition among elites about what, whether you should do this or not. It's, and it's basically those in Macron's government, those who Macron didn't invite, those who aren't TV, those who aren't TV. But there's a confusion of messages, which in a way does reflect democratic pluralism. So the, I think that's at least one issue here is, is it what kind of the countries that have succeeded that are democratic are those that have managed to keep the elite fragmentation out of the business of messaging about the how to respond to the crisis. I listen to you time and time again While you tell me just what's right And you tell me a thousand things a day Then sleep somewhere else at night Going back to Kansas City And I love you tears But just how long Can I keep singing the same old song And I love you tears But just how long 
Just how long can I keep singing? 